Welcome to Truth and Liberty. Thank you for joining our daily live call-in broadcast where trusted leaders bring biblical insights to the issues and you can call in and get your questions answered in real time. According to the Bible, it's the truth you know that sets you free. So call in today to get answers, information, and resources to help you stand for truth and effect godly change in our nation and the world. And now here's your host, Richard Harris. Hello, everybody. This is Richard Harris, and I'd like to welcome you to the Truth and Liberty Live Call-In Show uh, on this uh, wonderful Monday afternoon. Uh, God bless you guys. It's so good to have you joining me. Um, today's program, it's uh, going to be me and just me. I don't have any guests for you today because I just wanted to take this program today to share with you from my heart about some really important subjects and also uh, to just talk with you guys. So remember, this is the Live Call-In Show, so you can call in with any questions you have. Uh, it can be about government politics or any Bible questions, whatever you'd like to talk about today. This is the Truth and Liberty live call-in show. So be sure to call in uh, with your questions. Hey, listen, uh, I just got back from Washington, D.C. Uh, was there from Thursday uh, through Sunday. And uh, I, I went to Washington for the Family Research Council annual uh, uh, conference. They used to call it the Values Voter uh, Summit, but now they call it the Pray, Vote, Stand Summit. And I, I have to tell you, it was excellent. It was a phenomenal conference. I'm, I'm usually um, not that partial to other people's conferences. I really like my own conference. I'm not that uh, usually enamored with others, but this one was so good. Uh, there were amazing speakers and uh, incredible information, and we got to connect with a whole lot of different uh, awesome organizations. So it was it was just really fantastic. And I want to talk to you a little bit more about that uh, in in today's show. Um, but w w one thing before we go in too much further is I wanted to mention our conference, the Truth and Liberty Conference. We just held that on September 7, 8, and 9. If you did not have a chance to come to that or if you haven't um, looked, uh, watched any of it already, uh, you can go on our website at truthandliberty.net and just uh, watch the entire thing if you want. And uh, it was really great. Uh, some powerful messages from Chad Connolly, David Barton, Janet Porter, Muhammad Faridi, uh, Pastor Lucas Miles, Andrew Womack, uh, opening night, uh, gave an amazing message. I, I spoke on um, uh, the passage in Gideon, you know, Gideon's story. And, uh, and then also we had, the, we had the, uh, the drama overturned. If you didn't get to see that drama, you need to watch it. I promise you, there was not a dry eye in the house. That thing was powerful. And uh, if, it, if it doesn't motivate you to stand for life, then I, I don't know what will. It was just awesome. Everybody needs to watch it. So be sure to go on our website and check that out. Um, but uh, it was a great event and uh, really just a blessing. So um, next year, be sure to come. If you didn't get to come this time, be sure to come next year. You'll be glad you did. So um, also coming up here next week, October 2nd through, actually that's two weeks, isn't it? 2nd through the 6th, October 2nd 
through the 6th is Andrew's annual ministers conference. Um, I don't know what number he's on now, but I think it's up to 40, maybe more than 40 years in a row. Andrew has been holding the ministers conference where he invites uh, anybody who's in full-time ministry and their spouses and families to come um, for uh, the ministers conference. And it is always an amazing time of refreshing and renewal, uh, power, uh, revelation and everything else. And it's going to be a great time again this year. Uh, Andrew's going to be ministering along with Mike and Carrie Pickett, uh, the vice presidents of Karis Bible College and, and, uh, and World Outreach Ministries, Bob Yandian, Pastor Bob, uh, Dwayne Sheriff, uh, Pastor Dwayne, who's the pastor of Victory Life uh, Church in, um, based in Durant, Oklahoma and Sherman, Texas. And he's got eight to 10 different extension campuses. Pastor Dwayne is now a co-host of the Truth and Liberty Show. So you're probably getting to know Dwayne a little bit more, a great, great teacher. Pastor Bob Nichols, uh, Greg Moore, one of the best Bible teachers anywhere is going to be ministering. Uh, Wendell Parr, who's awesome. Billy Epperhart. It is great, a great lineup. So be sure to check that out. Uh, you can go on Andrew Womack Ministries website, awmi.net and register for that uh, today. Okay, guys. So I went to this FRC Family Research Council conference uh, Thursday through Sunday in Washington, D.C. And it was just amazing. Um, I, I could go through all the list of speakers and stuff and tell you all about them, but I did just want to highlight a few. Uh, uh, George Barna, who's a good friend of ours, George is probably the leading Christian pollster. Uh, before he became a Christian pollster, George um, used to do political surveys and stuff like that. But for the last several decades, he's been focusing in on biblical worldview. In other words, measuring how many, what percentage of Christians, what percentage of Americans, what percentage of different demographics hold to a biblical worldview, what are the elements of a worldview, and how can we restore a biblical worldview to our country? Now, that might sound a little bit sort of, you know, academic, scholarly, boring, but I, I want to assure you today it is anything but boring. In actuality, it is vital, uh, vital work to the Great Commission. And I'm going to be talking more in today's show about the Great Commission. Um, before I get to that, though, let me tell you uh, one thing that George did. He's got a new book out. Uh, you need to find that and get it and read it. I, I picked picked one up. I haven't read it yet, but I will. But George taught out of this book and he's talking about what to do with the next generation. And basically the statistics on worldview are such, they're so low now. Um, you know, only 4% of Americans hold to a biblical worldview. Of Gen Zers, that's the, the, the youngest uh, uh, age group of, of adults, only 2%, folks, 2% hold to a biblical worldview. Now, you know, it's, it doesn't mean that you have to be, um, you know, well-versed, be able to recite scripture and out on the streets evangelizing, going on mission trips, preaching in the pulpit. No, we're just saying that you have a biblical worldview, that you look at the world through a biblical lens. You see things from biblical reality. Only 2% of Gen Zers have a biblical worldview. All right, so this means that we in America are in very serious trouble spiritually. It means that the church, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but these are the people, Gen Zers are the ones who are going to be leading this country for the next 40 to 60 years. 
98% of them don't see things the way the Bible says they are. So what are we going to do, guys? Are we just going to let this continue to deteriorate? Are we going to let things continue to operate the way with, that they're operating? Or are we going to stand up and change the way we're doing things? You know, um, another great, great speaker was a gentleman named Oz Guinness. Now, um, I'd never heard Oz Guinness speak. I'd heard of him. Uh, he's a little bit of a philosopher, a Christian philosopher. He's British by uh, ancestry, born in, in China, actually, before World War II or during World War II. Um, but what a scholar, what a brilliant man, so incredibly eloquent. He took the platform and spoke in the most eloquent, perfect English and English accent, which always helps, <laughs> for 45 minutes without a single note. And it was just so moving and powerful. But he talked about the history of civilizations. And he said that civilizations have a life cycle. And typically, uh, civilizations will, after their zenith, will reach a, um, a decision point, if you will. And America and the West, more broadly, are now at a decision point. And, and how civilizations respond when they get to this, the decision point determines whether they will fall into the ash heap of history, whether they will continue to degrade and disintegrate and implode, or whether they will rebound, reset, re-strengthen, revitalize. Well, obviously, the decision point is, speaks to issues like who are we, what are our values? What are we about? And what's important to us? And are we going to allow these things to continue to deteriorate or are we going to reestablish them? And America is obviously at a decision point right now in our history. We actually have an opportunity to reset our country, to reset it on the biblical foundation that it was founded on, or we can continue down the path we're on. And so, um, a really poignant message, powerful. You know, um, uh, I was one of the other things I wanted to share with you guys today about this conference that I was at is one of the sponsors and exhibitors, Truth and Liberty, was a sponsor of the conference. We weren't the major sponsor, but we were a sponsor. Uh, one of the other major sponsors was Evangelism Explosion. Uh, if you're over the age of 40, you might remember Evangelism Explosion. Have you ever heard of that? It's a ministry that was birthed by Dr. D. James Kennedy at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Florida, Orlando, Florida, back in the, I don't know, the 80s, I think, maybe the early 90s. But it's a, it's a program and a ministry that helps equip Christians to share their faith, to, to share the gospel and lead people to Christ. I was so excited to see them there. I actually connected with the president of Evangelism Explosion, a guy named John Sorensen, and we had the best conversation. And he he told me that they have actually, last year, they actually uh, won 17 million people to Christ around the world. And I, I just think that's fantastic. Uh, Evangelism Explosion is a program that any church can use to train its people on how to witness for Christ, how to win people to Christ. And you know, we, in the body of Christ today, we need, a, we need a rebirth of evangelism. We need a rebirth of discipleship. 
And we need to return to the biblical model and to the commandments the Lord has given us. But it's got to begin with evangelism. We have to go out there and win this nation back to Jesus Christ. And uh, I was just so excited to, to hear from them. And what an easy program. And so I just want to encourage all of you to check that out. We're going to be talking more about evangelism explosion um, uh, before the end of the year. I, I hope to have John on as a guest on the show and uh, make his resources available to all of you and to all the churches out there. All right. Well, the last thing I wanted to mention about the conference, uh, Alex, well, not the last thing, second to last thing, Alex McFarland and I got to do a breakout session, a workshop. And, and the, the topic that uh, I chose was how the church, how the local church can change the culture or changing the culture through the local church. And uh, it's from that uh, presentation that I want to share with you guys today. Um, basically, um, in, in the little bit of time that I have left in this segment, um, I want to show you, uh, let's bring up some slides, if you will. I believe in my heart that in the church in the West and in America, we need to take a look at the Great Commission. And I believe that it's time for us to reset our understanding. Not to reset the Great Commission because it is what it is. It doesn't change. But I believe that our understanding of the Great Commission has been diluted, has been watered down, and is no longer biblical. And I think we have a myopic view of what Jesus commanded us to do in the Great Commission. And that we need to return to the Bible on this subject. Um, uh, I want to show you a graph. Now, a few, um, a few months back, I taught... Uh, a session like this with you guys. And, and so this graph might be familiar to you. But every year, the Pew Research Foundation does a study of religion in America. And um, they, the, the information they have uh, begins in 1972. And you can see from this graph, the, the top line measures the number or the percentage of Americans who identify as Christian. Okay. Now, it doesn't mean that they are actually born again and have had a salvation, personal salvation experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that this is the percentage of people who, when asked, what religion do you belong to, will say, I'm a Christian. Okay. And so from 1972 until about 1992 or 93, the percentage of Americans that said, I'm Christian, stayed fairly constant at around 91% or 92%. And I believe that if we were able to track that back in time, it would have stayed constant or even been a little bit higher. But you can look at this graph and you can see that in 1992, 1993, that number began to fall. And it started falling pretty rapidly. And it's still falling today. And as of the last time the, the, the numbers were reported, which I think was 2021 or 2019, Pew Research Foundation showed that only 63% of Americans still identify as Christians. So that's a decline of 30%, 30% in 30 years, right? So we're at 63%. This means that in 15 years or less than 15 years, less than half of America will identify as Christian. So that graph to me is a wake-up call. It is an alarm bell. It is uh, shouting to us as Christians. We have to do something different. Something is desperately wrong in America today, in the church today. We are losing our country right in front of our very eyes. Millions of souls 
are rejecting the gospel or not hearing the gospel or are growing up somehow to be atheists. If you put the, back, the graph back up for a minute, guys, the bottom line in the graph, the, 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 the dark one, the black one, not the bottom one, the black one, these are the percentage of people that have no religious affiliation, no religious faith. You can see it has been growing at about the same pace and in the same degree as the drop in Christianity. It went from uh, 1992, somewhere around 6%, it started growing, and today it's at 29%. This means that in 15 years, a majority, maybe not 15, maybe 20 years, a majority of Americans are going to be not non-religious at all, basically atheists. The bottom line hasn't grown at all. It's still around where it used to be, which these are other religions, so Hindus, Muslims, whatever. What we're seeing is the impact and effect of secularism and the rejection of God. We are quickly, quickly becoming a secular, materialistic, atheistic nation. All right? So what I want to do is I want to um, ask you this. You guys, listen to me now. The way we're doing church in America, the way we're doing church in America, is it working? Well, you can't look at that graph and say, yes, it's not working, guys. Something is very wrong. We have got to figure out what is wrong, and we've got to fix it. And I believe the answer lies directly in the pages of Scripture. So um, 2% of the, of the youngest generation holds a biblical worldview. Did you know that a biblical worldview is pretty much set in a person by the age of 13 years of age? A person's worldview, not just biblical, but any worldview, is pretty much set. The core elements are set by the time you reach the age of 13. It's a rare individual who changes worldview after the age of 13. And if only 2% hold to a worldview, that means in 40 years, 30 years, our nation is going to be governed by a group of people, 98% of whom do not have a biblical worldview. This is not a good picture. <laughs> so what are we doing wrong? Well, let's take a look at the Great Commission, shall we? The Great Commission is found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. And in this passage, Jesus has been raised from the dead, and He comes and appears to His disciples. And it says in verse 18, He came and spake unto them, saying, All power on, in heaven, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So this is the Great Commission, what we normally call the Great Commission. One of the things to notice here is that Jesus begins, He doesn't begin with, go ye therefore. He begins with all power. He says, all power is given unto me. That's the opening line. Why does he say all power? Well, the word power there is the Greek word exousia. It's not the Greek word dunamis. There's two words in the Greek translated power in the English Bible. One of them is exousia and the other one is dunamis. And exousia means authority. Dunamis means energetic, dynamic power. Okay? All authority is given unto me where? In heaven and in earth. Why does Jesus begin with the statement that all authority is given unto me, go ye therefore? You see, the command to go ye therefore is connected to the statement, all power is given unto me, all authority is given unto me. You see, what Christ is commanding us to do in the Great Commission is He is commanding us to restore in the earth the authority 
of the Word of God. That's right. Because if you go back to the Garden of Eden, you know, you know what happened there is Satan sowed doubt into Adam and Eve about the authority of God and His Word. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, Satan, who's the more subtle than any beast of the field, appears to Eve and he says to her, Hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree? Right? Uh, he said, uh, now the serpent was more subtle, and he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman begins to talk to him, and she says, God has said, you shall not eat of the tree uh, that is in the midst of the garden, um, uh, or touch it, and so on. All right? now, now we can get sidetracked on a lot of things here. But then if you go to verse 4, after the woman says that, then Satan directly contradicts God's word in verse 4. And he says, And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. In other words, God is a liar. God's word is not true. God's word is not to be trusted. The woman then saw the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she took it, seeing it was good for food, desired to make one wise and pleasing to the eyes, and she ate of it and then gave unto her husband who was with her, and he did eat. And at that moment their eyes were opened, and they both uh, were naked and were ashamed. Okay? So this is the fall of Adam and Eve. This is the entry of sin. And the question there is the question now. And the question has always been, who's to say? Who's to say what is right? Who's to say what is wrong? Who's to say? In other words, who are we accountable to? Who's in charge here? And the Bible says that God's in charge. But this generation is saying, no, I'm in charge. God's not in charge. I reject His word. I'm in charge. The Great Commission is first and foremost a commandment for us to go and to restore the authority of God's word. If we go back to Matthew chapter 28, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. All right? So let's look. There are three elements that follow. If we look at verse 19, he says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations... Two, and then he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And then he tells us in verse 20, what do we teach them? Teach them to observe, okay? So to obey, to submit, to what? All things that God has commanded, that Jesus has commanded. Not just some things, but all things. And then the third thing, um, the third thing, well, excuse me, I missed the, the second thing there. The first thing is to uh, is to make dis the first thing is to make disciples. So let's go to the next screen here. There's three elements. I'm sorry, guys, I got a little ahead of myself. The first thing is to make disciples. So he says, go and teach all nations or make disciples of all nations. So the first thing is we make disciples. Well, what's a disciple? What's a disciple? Remember in John chapter 8, verses 30 and 31, Jesus said, it, it says that Jesus said to the Jews which believed on him. In the, the next verse in 31, If you abide in my, or continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Okay, now these are people that already believed in Jesus. And he's saying to them, to be a disciple, you need to continue in my word. You need to stay in my word. And then the next verse, which we love to quote, John chapter 8 uh, I believe it's verse 32 says, and then you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. We like to just quote that verse um, in isolation. But the context is, if you stay in God's word, then you know the truth and the truth makes you free. 
But backing up a little bit further, he's talking to people that believe in him. And he says, if you stay in my word, then you're my disciple. So in Matthew 28, when he says, go and make disciples of all nations, he's not talking about making converts. Making converts is not making disciples. Making a convert, leading someone in the sinner's prayer, getting them to accept Jesus Christ into their heart and be saved. This is only step one in the Great Commission, right? It's the first step in a journey of discipleship. Now, just let that sink in, guys. We got to let that sink in. Because most of the time in church, when we talk about the Great Commission, you and me and all other Christians, we think the pastor is saying, go out and get people saved. That is not what Jesus said here. The Great Commission is disciples, making disciples of all nations. So a disciple is someone who lives in and abides in, remains in the Word of God, who submits to the Word of God in everything. A follower, a disciple is a student of a master, a follower of a master, a person who obeys everything the master says, who emulates and copies the lifestyle of the master. The 12 disciples followed Jesus and emulated his lifestyle, right? So we are to live in his word, abide in his word, and obey every commandment that he's given to us. So we're called to make disciples. That's number one. Number two, we're called to make disciples of nations, not individuals. Now, wait a second. I should say not just individuals. If we could put that one slide back up, it's not just converts and it's not just individuals. It is individuals, but not just individuals. It's nations. Well, how do you disciple a nation, guys? How do you disciple a nation? I can't get the nation to come and sit in my Sunday school class. The room's not big enough and I'm not that influential. All right. So obviously we, we are working on individuals, but our goal, our objective has to be much bigger. The Great Commission is so much bigger and so much deeper than what we think. You see, what we're really doing in the Great Commission is we are reinstituting the original commandment and commission of God in the garden. Of, in the garden. When He created man, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, He said to man, He said, Go and be fruitful and take dominion over all the earth. Right? Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. There you can see authority again. We are supposed to call the world into submission to Jesus Christ. We are restoring the authority that the first man gave away. The second Adam, Jesus, has regained. And he has the authority not just of earth, but of heaven, all authority in heaven and earth. And he's commissioning us to go out and restore that dominion, his dominion, in all the earth. And so when we're talking about the Great Commission, it, we're not talking about just individuals, we're talking about nations. Do you know the Bible says in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, God says there, he says um, that the day will come when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Isn't that an incredible verse? The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. You know, um, the Great Commission is so much more than just getting people saved so that they can go to heaven with us. That's what we think of in evangelism. But that, and that's important. It's huge because we need a compassion for souls. But God created the world to be governed by His Word through us, His vessels.
And so what we, we're seeing our world around us deteriorate today in large measure because we are not fulfilling the Great Commission. We don't even know what it is anymore. The third element of the Great Commission, so number one is to make disciples, not just converts. Number two is to disciple nations, not just individuals. How are we going to disciple nations if we're not speaking to nations? If we're not speaking to culture? If we're not going out of the four walls of our church building into the streets, but also into the offices and into the classrooms and into the halls of Congress and into the boardrooms and into the science laboratories and into the, the, uh, the, the TV studios and the movie studios and the sound recording studios and the art. If we're not going everywhere, taking truth, standing for Christ, you see, but we've been intimidated and backed into a corner and we've given up these areas. This is why we're losing the battle. You know, there's seven mountains of cultural influence. The mission of Truth and Liberty Coalition is to educate, mobilize, and unify the body of Christ to stand for truth in the seven mountains of cultural influence. Real quickly, those seven mountains. Now, you can argue about whether there's other mountains and stuff like that, and that's fine. But basically, there's, there's these arenas of cultural influence, and they're uh, religion, family, government, education, business, um, arts and entertainment, media, and I believe uh, uh, business, okay? So we are, we are supposed to go into these mountains and bring the truth of God into these mountains so that the every mountain of influence transmits uh, ideas and information to the culture. I'm going to say that again. Every mountain of influence transmits ideas and information to the culture. Every day, the mountain of media is transmitting ideas to the culture. Every day, education is transmitting ideas and information. Every day, the news media, um, the government, uh, arts and entertainment, and so on down the list is transmitting ideas and information. And in America, we've given up these mountains of influence. And as a result of that, the vast majority of the message that is coming to our culture is ungodly, is demonic, and there are lies. And we, out of the church mountain, we're not even going into the world. We're telling the world, come to us. Come into my church building on Sunday morning and listen to me. All right, I've got to stop here because uh, I'm out of time in this segment. We're going to come back after a little break here. And I'm going to finish this up, and then we're going to start taking questions. Um, uh, but let's take a break now for about 90 seconds, and we're, we'll share some important information with you. Hang on, and we'll be right back. Hey, you know, a big part of what we do here at Truth and Liberty is to provide you with the resources that you need in order to stand for truth in the public square. So I want to remind everybody to go to our website and check out our resources page at truthandliberty.net slash resources, where you can find material that discusses just about every issue we're facing today in our culture. And these are things that are prepared by our strategic partners and some of the uh, most influential and important organizations in America today. Andrew has many conferences and seminars around the globe each year. For the latest information on Andrew's complete speaking schedule, visit our website at awmi.net slash events. You were created with a purpose. Written in the heart of God. Long before you were born, He is calling you to find it.
help you experience his unconditional love to be equipped and empowered to become a world changer. Okay, everybody, we're back now on the Truth and Liberty Live Calling Show. I'm Richard Harris. Thank you so much for tuning in today, for joining us. I do not take this for granted, and uh, I, I just so appreciate all of our viewers and subscribers. Let me just mention before I pick back up on my remarks, we've got a couple of folks holding on the phones. If you've got questions today, you want to talk about this subject of the Great Commission or resetting the Great Commission or why America's in the condition it is, feel free to call in. Or if you have any Bible questions or you've got any comments or anything like that, please call in. I'd love to hear from you. The number's on your screen. Also, if you're not a Truth and Liberty subscriber, uh, I really want to encourage you to do that. Also, like and follow us on Facebook and on Instagram and on uh, on Rumble. Um, but if you subscribe, uh, you'll begin to receive our, our email updates and our newsletter. And uh, those are specifically designed to keep you informed, to get you equipped and mobilized uh, to, uh, to be effective in the culture. So be sure to do that. All right, guys. So we're talking about uh, that we need a reset of our understanding of the Great Commission. And um, so in the Great Commission, there's basically three elements. We're to make disciples, not just converts. We're to disciple nations, not just individuals. And, and I, I think I was commenting on there, how are we supposed to do that if we don't engage the culture? And, and I think we've bought into a lie here, uh, big time, across the body of Christ. As we've withdrawn from education, we've withdrawn from the media, we've withdrawn from, uh, from science, and, and all across the board, we've withdrawn from government for various reasons. And I'll talk about some of these I'm happy to talk about those. I'm kind of out of time now, but pulling back from these has surrendered them to the devil. And so, like, uh, for example, kids in our public schools today, right, they go to school 40 hours a week. And even Christian kids, uh, their mom and dad, they might try to get them into church on Sunday. Most families don't go every week. Most families go maybe once a month, twice a month. Um, and when they're there, how often do they sit under the Word? Well, young children are shipped off to what we call Children's Church. You know, my wife and I, um, we stopped doing that. Um, in fact, our kids used to say to us, Dad, uh, Mom, I don't like Children's Church. It's boring. They're just telling baby stories in there. They rather go in big church and listen to the Word being preached. Um, and I think our kids have a lot more ability to absorb the Word of God and to be strengthened by the Spirit and the Word than we give them credit for. You know, John Quincy Adams, um, uh, he read the Bible. Uh, he had read it through many times uh, by the time he was a teenager um, and was fluent in like four languages by the age of 14. Uh, we underestimate the ability of our children. I'll tell you that. That's for sure. Uh, but, but the point is that we, our kids, we, we, they might get 15 minutes of light teaching, preaching in church these days, once a week. And yet we turn them over to the public schools where they're sitting there for 40 hours a week getting indoctrinated with all kinds of ungodly philosophies from LGBTism to Marxism to uh, uh, evolution, being taught that they evolved out of slime. You know, if you teach kids that they didn't have, that they're not created by God, how are they going to have any understanding of unalienable rights? Thomas Jefferson said, I tremble for my country when I consider that, my, that the people for, may forget that their rights come from God. How are they going to get any, any uh, sense of purpose? How are they going to get any sense of moral accountability or absolute truth? 
How are they going to believe that the Bible is the inerrant uh, Word of God if they're taught 40 hours a week that they evolved from slime? Without purpose, without identity, you know, they're going to be depressed. They're going to commit suicide. That's what we're seeing. They're going to get hooked on drugs. They're going to get involved in illicit sex. They're going to want to change their gender. They're going to be grasping, yearning, desperate. This is what's happening. The third element of the Great Commission, the first one is to go and make disciples, not just converts. The second one is to disciple nations, not just individuals. And the third one is to make disciples who observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you, not just select topics that are comfortable. Okay, you follow me? All things whatsoever I've commanded, from one end of the book to the other. Do you think the Bible talks about economics? Does it talk about sex? Does it talk about sexual morality? Does it talk about male-female relationships? Does it talk about um, creation and science? How about abortion and the identity of babies in the womb? It talks about all of these things, guys, and many, many more, right? All of the issues of our day. It talks about free enterprise. It talks about free enterprise over and over. You can see uh, private property ownership from the very beginning. It says that Abel made an offering to the Lord of his flock. Okay? The law of ownership is woven into all of creation. I'm telling you, church, that we have got, get, got to get back to the Bible, and we've got to get back to what Jesus actually commanded us to do if we're going to win this nation, if we're going to win it back to Christ. Um, and I'm going to start taking calls here in a second, but I want to touch on other, one other thing, and that is the five-fold ministry. Okay, so in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, it says that Jesus gave some gifts. And what are those gifts? Now, there are many gifts mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, the book of uh, 1 Corinthians tells us that God, that, the, that God gave operations, He gave gifts, and He gave um, uh, another category, which is escaping me at the moment. I'll, I'll think of it. But these three categories of gifts, um, and, and 1 Corinthians 12 lists the gifts of the Spirit. Romans 12 lists the operations. Oh, administrations. And Ephesians 4 lists the administrations. The administrations are five, and they're listed here in Ephesians chapter 4. And they're apostle, prophet, pastor, or excuse me, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Okay? Some people combine the pastor-teacher function, but I think that's a mistake. So, but, but these five gifts, um, here's why I want to talk about this. Because Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 tells us why these gifts are given. It says He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now remember, there's no commas in the Greek, in the original language, all right? So verse 12 says He gave it for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Take that comma out. For the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. For the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. Okay? God gave the gift of pastor and the gift of teacher in order to complete you and me, saints, so that we can do the work of the ministry. But the 90% of the body of Christ sits in the pews Sunday after Sunday and looks at the pastor and thinks it's the pastor's job to preach the gospel. It's the pastor's job to heal the sick. It's the pastor's job to, uh, to uh, do this and to do that. I just come here to consume. I come to get my dose of you know, teaching. I come so I can check the box and say, I went to church on Sunday, now I've done my duty, and I can feel good, and I can get an inspirational message. How many of us go to church with the mindset of, I'm going to go get trained, I'm going to go get equipped so I can go out and make disciples of all nations? 
You see, most churches are operating in a spectator sport mentality. It's a mindset that we've inherited from an ecclesiastical model that was handed down to us from the Roman Empire. It's unbiblical, it's unscriptural, and if we're going to win this nation back to Christ, we've got to reject this mode of operation, and we've got to begin to look at the local church as an army base, not as just a hospital. You know, Lucas Miles said, uh, it's, the local church isn't a hospital, and he's, he's, he's right, I think. It's, it's more than, it does have a hospital function to it. We, we, we heal people, get them saved and equipped, but we're supposed to be sending them out. We're supposed to be sending out warriors and champions. Where? Into the culture, into the society. All right, guys, so there's so much more that I can say about this subject. But the, my point is today, we look at that graph and we see Christianity dropping like a rock we see George Barna saying, 2% of the youngest generation holds to a biblical worldview. We've got to disciple this generation. We need to do a 180 when it comes to the Great Commission and how we look at it. Is it about winning souls? Absolutely it is. But winning souls is step number one. We've got to start making disciples. And this means we've got to do a whole lot more teaching, preaching, evangelizing, equipping, mobilizing, sending out intentional strategy, strategic engagement. And, and, uh, and I could go into a whole lot more. I've got a teaching on five myths that are hindering the Great Commission. Just real quickly, I'll tell you. One, number one is pastors think that it's their job to just preach the gospel. That's a myth. Not true. Not true, pastor. If you say, I'm just called to preach the gospel, you are wrong. You are called to preach the whole counsel of God. You are called to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. It's much more than just the Romans wrote every Sunday. The second myth that hinders the gospel um, is the pastor should avoid topics that might offend people. This is a lie from the devil, right? Pastor, if you believe this, I bet it's because you just want butts in the chairs on Sunday. Now, forgive me if I offend you. But you could fill every chair in your church on Sunday and not be making disciples. You can be making people feel good. You can be even getting them to say the sinner's prayer, but you may not be making disciples if you're not preaching the whole counsel of God. Because we're commanded to teach nations to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. The third myth is that we just need to love people. We do need to love people. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. How can we preach the gospel if we're not loving people? We've got to show people the love of God. But if all we do is love people, then that means we're not preaching the truth and teaching them the truth. Yes, God says that a man who lieth with a man is an abomination. A woman who lieth with a woman is an abomination. A man who wears that which pertaineth unto a woman is an abomination. Okay, these things are sin. They work death and corruption into, the, into us. You know, using drugs is, is a sin. Uh, and many other things. We've got to teach and preach the whole counsel of God. The, the, uh, the, the next uh, myth that is hindering the Great Commission, just real quickly, is that some things are secular and some things are sacred. This is another lie from the devil. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything in creation belongs to our Heavenly Father, therefore everything is sacred. He wants it all redeemed, all to come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and there will come a day when it does. Right now we're in the age of grace, and He wants us to call people to come voluntarily, come and, and freely drink of the water of life. Right? But there's no such thing as secular and sacred. We need to reject that vocabulary. We need to purge our mindset of it 
every single function of humanity, from government offices to business offices and everything in between, is sacred, is called by God to be sacred, okay? So none of this false division anymore saying, oh, there's, there's something holy about the, the fivefold ministry, but uh, going into business is not holy. Poppycock, baloney, it's a lie. Reject it. Okay. And the last myth is that if we engage in certain occupations, we're going to get dirty, that it's sinful or it's worldly. Oh, don't try, don't have, try to have a successful business because that's greed and that's God wants us poor. Or don't go into politics, it's a dirty business. Oh, don't go into the film industry, it's a dirty business. These are lies from Satan. They're coming from the wrong side of the cross. You're cleansed by the blood of Jesus. You're righteous on the inside. You're holy on the inside. Nothing on the outside is going to make you dirty, make you sinful, make you unholy. Besides that, go back to the first thing I said. God wants us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. How do we do that if we're afraid of getting sinful, but just by engaging in certain occupations? We've got to get on the right side of the cross, folks, on the resurrection side, and take the truth of the gospel into every part of culture and society. All right, I'm going to stop now. Uh, I hope this has been a blessing to you. Uh, I'm going to make these slides available on our website, our resources page at Truth and Liberty. So if you want to get them, you can. Um, and uh, uh, I just believe in the, uh, you know, there's a fire in my belly on this. I think this is the most important issue of our day. And if we can fix this, this nation will be turned around. If we can repent and obey God's word in this area, we will see America turned around. It's a certainty. It's not a doubt. It's a certainty. Okay, because the Word of God and the power of God will come in behind us and make it happen. All right, that's all. Okay, let's start taking questions now. Uh, and as I mentioned, this is the live call-in show, so call in. Let me hear from you now. Uh, our first, we've got callers on the line, and the first one is uh, Jesse calling in from the amazing, wonderful, great state of Oklahoma. <laughs> uh, Jesse, thanks for calling in today. What's your question? Hi, Richard. Thanks for taking my call. Absolutely. Um, I called you about this uh, kind of along the same type of thing about a few months ago when Donald Trump uh, criticized the heartbeat bill in Florida. Yep. And uh, yesterday he elaborated on it a little bit more. He said it was terrible. Mm. So I was wondering if you could comment on that because I've noticed that some people have been ignoring it and kind of like acting like he didn't really say it. And, uh, and I'm aware of all the, successes and everything that uh, he uh, was able to accomplish and everything. But it seems like since the overturning of Roe versus Wade, it seems like he's trying to go towards the middle, if, if not towards the left on this. Uh, yeah, Jesse, excellent. Thank you so much for your question. Um, I did not know that he said that. I think I had heard something earlier today, but I, I haven't seen the remarks yet. Um, what I did see is Donald Trump spoke at the Family Research Council conference in Washington. I was there live in person, heard him, heard the other candidates. And um, Donald Trump at the conference did not, um, he, he claimed credit, rightly so, for getting Roe overturned by appointing three Supreme Court justices uh, that were pro-life. Um, however, he, his comments with respect to where we are now were really uh, pretty vague. And he kept referring to the need to, um, um, what, what were his words? It was like um, the need to come to an, an agreement. Yeah, 
as if the whole nation is going to come to an agreement on what the national law ought to be on, on abortion. He didn't say a national law, but that's, that's like the only thing I could infer from that, uh, is that he may be driving towards wanting a national uh, statute, Congress to pass a statute uh, prohibiting abortion in some circumstances. Now, he mentioned he's against uh, any restriction in the case of incest, rape, and when the life of the mother is threatened. Uh, he didn't go beyond that. But if he's publicly criticizing the heartbeat bill, which is basically uh, a seven, six, seven, or eight-week ban, um, then we've got, we've got a serious problem on our hands because that implies that he thinks the appropriate line for abortion is somewhere after a human heartbeat is detected. And that, my friends, is murder, and there's no other way to slice it. So this is a serious problem. Our, if, if this is what he believes, then our front runner for the GOP nomination, and not by a little, but by a long shot, wants a law to get passed and I'm inferring a lot here, I grant you, I could be wrong, but it sure looks like he's driving towards wanting a law on a national level that will end the debate on abortion uh, and, uh, and, and somewhere, uh, you know, after a human heartbeat can be detected. Um, and so that means we would be enshrining into national law, um, uh, allowing the murder of innocent human beings, and we cannot stand for that. So uh, I, I love Donald Trump. I think he was an amazing president, and I think he, there are many things about him that make me want him to be president again. But I'm going to have to think and pray about this one a little bit. And um, I'll tell you what, uh, Ron DeSantis got the heartbeat bill passed in Florida, and uh, I'm assuming that he would stand for that again um, as president. Now, he may not think that a national law is needed. He may prefer for the states to continue to address this. Uh, so that's another debate that we can have. But this is a big issue. Um, and Christians everywhere, listen to me, guys, Christians everywhere, now is the time to begin to speak up and to let Trump hear our voices that this is not acceptable. We need to begin to message him however we can on Facebook, social media, everywhere, that this will cost him our vote if he goes there. That we must, we can tolerate nothing else but a heartbeat bill at a national level. And some people might even say an outright ban after conception. But um, I'm telling you that, and, and I would say that too, but I think we might be better off in terms of our success if we didn't go that far at a national level and just let the states adjudicate it. But that's also a strategic question subject to debate. Notice I'm not saying it's a moral question. Anytime uh, after conception, abortion is a sin, okay? Uh, and, it, and it should be illegal. But Jesse, thank you for your question. That's kind of my view on the matter. And uh, I know there's a lot of room for discussion on that, uh, but that's how I see it. So thank you for calling in. All right, guys, so this is the Truth and Liberty Live call-in show. Be sure to call in with your questions today. Next, I want to go to Donna from Texas. Um, and uh, appreciate you, Donna. You're a Truth and Liberty member and an Andrew Womack Ministries partner. Thank you for your support. Hi, Richard. Um, I'm not sure exactly how my question is worded. <laughs> it's been a long time on the phone. but Yeah, you've been waiting a while. <laughs> but my question is, to make disciples out of all these people without the church backing us, the different churches coming, because it's a lot of cities, you can't find um, a church that stands to the uh, biblical worldview. 
you know, they're just yeah. going about their little business, blah, 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 blah. So how can we make disciples out of them? I mean, we can do it one-on-one or small group, but I mean, enough to matter. Yeah. Without well, churches uh, backing us. I don't understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, good question. Well, first of all, um, let me just comfort you a little bit and everybody who's watching. It's not your responsibility to fix every church, right? We don't, no one can do that. That's up to the Lord. But what you can do is, number one, is you can make sure that you're going to a Bible-believing church that's dedicated to making disciples, okay? So that's number one. Make sure you're going to the right church. Number two is in your local church, you can step up to the plate. Right? Remember what I said? It's not the pastor's job to make disciples. It's the pastor's job to equip us to make disciples. Okay? So we got to get this uh, kind of spectator mentality out of us. So, you know, Andrew Womack is developing some materials right now. He's already got materials. He's got so much material that is, will make disciples. You, you, can't, you can't cover it all. Right? But like, for example, one thing he's got is called Discipleship Evangelism, a 48-week course. Uh, that will really help make disciples. But, but also, he's got um, four editions now are out of Biblical Worldview. Biblical Worldview, you can link to it on our website at Truth and Liberty, or you can go to awmi.net. And it, it's uh, foundational issues, human sexuality, a biblical view on racism, and a biblical view on socialism, and there's more coming. And in each one of these, there's, uh, I think there's 10 lessons, maybe 12 lessons in each one from experts in the field. And there's study guides and discussion questions and DVDs. And uh, so this is a product that could be used anywhere. Just go to your pastor and say, Pastor, I'd like to start um, a Sunday school class or a small group ministry on biblical worldview. Um, By the way, Pastor, you wouldn't be interested in teaching the whole church, would you? If he says, no, you go for it, <laughs> okay? Then you get the Biblical Worldview series and you can start having a Sunday school class and doing your part, okay? The other thing, Donna, um, here at Truth and Liberty, we're trying to, we're not trying, we are making available to people some amazing resources by our strategic partners on how to create, uh, how to get the church involved in the culture. Um, and so there's several uh, organizations that I've been featuring lately in my uh, Truth and Liberty show episodes, uh, but one of them is Culture Impact Teams. So Culture Impact Teams is a program sponsored by Family Research Council. And this is uh, for churches where they can set up a 501c3 compliant group in the local church that will be the connection point between the church and um, the public square. So they'll, they'll go out, these people who have a passion for it, and they'll learn what's going on. They'll learn who's running for office, uh, and they'll bring it back to the church, all right, and inform people who, uh, who are interested in this sort of thing. They'll hold, they can hold candidate forums. They can hold classes to teach on issues and on the Constitution and whatever. And so uh, uh, we've got some great examples of powerful CIT teams right here in Colorado Springs. Uh, So that's a powerful tool. Another one is uh, biblical citizenship courses. Rick Green at the Patriot Academy has developed this, and it has taken churches by storm. I think he's got over... 2,000, maybe even up to 3,000 churches in America now are signing on to biblical citizenship courses. This is a program where right inside your local church, you can teach the Constitution uh, using uh, the Patriot Academy resources, some excellent, amazing videos, and then do a Q&A and stuff like that afterwards. And it, it teaches the Christian foundation of the Constitution. So it's basically 
a Sunday school class or a small group ministry or whatever on Christian citizenship, right? And normally these biblical citizenship programs, these people that are inside the church that get involved in these, they end up moving into actually also being involved in, in, in local government and in, um, in the public square and forming sort of like an auxiliary group that functions like a CIT. So another powerful ministry. Third one is called Salt and Light Councils. You can find the link on our website. Dran Reese is the head of this organization. Matt Staver is on the board of directors. These uh, provide education and training and, uh, and a framework inside the local church for people to get informed and to get involved. They'll see, again, there's a lot of overlap here. Some of these are doing a lot of the same kind of thing. They're all excellent. Uh, but you want to get a civic engagement group going in your local church, check out Salt and Light Council. There's links on the website. The fifth one that I wanted to mention is um, a few weeks back, I had Pastor Paul Blair on the show. And he's got a ministry called Liberty Pastors Training Camps. And we put that on our site too. You can have your pastor go and all he's got to pay, I think is a hundred dollars, right? Surely you can come up with a hundred dollars from the people in your church to pay his way. And Pastor Paul Blair has donors that cover the rest of the cost. And he'll put your pastor and his or her spouse up in a nice place, hotel for a weekend, and they'll get 20 to 30 hours of instruction on biblical worldview, the Christian heritage of America and how they can make a difference. You see, there's four powerful, powerful tools right there where if your church is not doing enough, you can go to your pastor with these ideas and you can be the one to make a change. You can be the one to start making a difference, Donna. And, and that's not just for you, Donna. That's for all of you who are watching today. Because I believe if we can push these ideas, if people will start taking advantage of these resources out there. Oh, I, met, I forgot one. Christians Engaged. Bunny Pounds, our dear friend Bunny. Uh, has has uh, started a program called Christians Engage. They've got training videos on how to run for office, on the Constitution, on Christians' role in government. They've got, uh, you can sign up to get an automatic text uh, to remind you uh, to pray every day and also to remind you when it's time to vote. Uh, they can link you to voter guides. I mean, it's an amazing idea she's got and she's in hundreds of churches. So all of these, these five different programs, any one of them would be powerful or any combination of these would be powerful in your local church. So to answer your questions, um, uh, how do you get the local church to start doing this? Then you've got to be the answer. You or maybe find some other people that are the same mindset, maybe two other people, one other person, three other people. I don't care. But you guys take responsibility, take ownership over this issue because your pastor doesn't have time. Make sure you don't just go to your pastor and say, Pastor, you need to do this. You need to set up a culture impact team. You need to preach on abortion. You need to blah, blah, blah. No, go to your pastor and say, Pastor, I know you care about what's right. And I know you believe in the right to life. Pastor, I, and in the Constitution, I want to make, I want to do this. I want to help our church get informed and equipped. Can I start a culture impact team? Can I start a biblical citizenship course? Can I uh, set up a Christians engaged program or a salt and light council? Pastor, can I send you and your wife to Liberty Pastor Training Camp for a weekend, all expenses paid? Right? So there's some great ideas for you. <laughs> Donna, I hope I didn't overwhelm you, uh, but um, that's all the time I've got for this. We're up on a hard break now. We're going to be back in about 90 seconds uh, to, con to continue this discussion. Please be sure to call in with your questions. 
At Truth and Liberty Coalition, we work to unify, educate, and mobilize the body of Christ to change nations. That's why I want to encourage you to go to our website at truthandliberty.net and subscribe so that you can begin receiving regular updates uh, about our show, news items, action alerts, blog posts, and much, much more. Uh, all you have to do is go to the website, click subscribe, share your email address, and you'll begin to be equipped to stand for truth in the public square. It's not enough to know what God's will is, but you have to learn how to do things God's way. Now, because of the new man on the inside of me, because of the cross, I can daily deny self. And if you don't learn to do that, you're not gonna fulfill all God's will for your life. You know, you don't find the beginning of God until you get to the end of yourself. This generation, is a generation of great darkness, and God is raising up a deliverer to shine in the midst of all of this darkness. But in Christ Jesus, I can do all things through Christ. Some people just quote, I can do all things. No, you can't. But through Christ, you can do all things. You gotta have these two opposites in balance. I'm nothing, but I'm everything in Christ. Hey, everybody. Well, we're back here on the Truth and Liberty Live call-in show. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's broadcast. Uh, we've been talking about the question of, is it time to uh, do a reset on our understanding of the Great Commission? We've had some great questions come in. And uh, so if you've got a question or a comment on any of this, how to get the church involved, how to get us back into doing what Jesus actually commanded us to do. And I think if we would actually look at the Word, and consider what he's saying in Matthew chapter 28 um, and make changes along those lines in our individual life and in our churches, it'd just be a matter of time before, before America would be experiencing a massive revival and restoration. All right, well, I'd like to go now to Frank from the uh, Show Me State of Missouri. Uh, Frank, thank you for calling in today. What's your question, brother? Oh, I just want to, how y'all doing? Thank you for having me. I, I just want to know the difference between... Uh, evangelism and and discipleship what is there still those identifiable uh, the the prophet and the evangelist and the and and uh, and uh, prophetic evangelism that's another thing but uh, mm. the basic question is about uh, uh, evangelism and discipleship yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, Frank, thank you for your question. It's a really good one. Um, so evangelism, let me just talk about that word for a second. Um, evangel, the word means, the word there means good news. Okay, good news. Um, and so um, the gospel also means good news. These are synonymous terms, all right? So when we say evangelism, we're talking about the practice of sharing the good news or of uh, proclaiming the good news, all right? To evangelize means to proclaim the good news. Um, and, and so basically, uh, you know, conceptually, we're talking about the presentation of the good news of Jesus Christ, which is that, you know, God uh, so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, uh, that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And, and then the, that He died for our sins on the cross, uh, so that we wouldn't have to, that he was raised from the dead on the third day, uh, 
ascended to heaven, is going to come back again, and that if we believe in him, we'll be forgiven, cleansed, made righteous, and given the gift of eternal life. Um, and, and so, you know, Romans chapter 10, if you believe in your heart, um, uh, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and you confess him as, as Lord, you will be saved. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace are you saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. These scriptures, this idea, the core message of the gospel, the presentation of that is really what we mean when we're talking about evangelism. Now, how does that differ from discipleship? Well, discipleship is to make a follower, a follower of Jesus, okay? So the Bible says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge, all right? So to become a follower, a full follower of Jesus Christ means to obey all things whatsoever He's commanded, means we abide in and live in His Word. So it goes beyond just bringing someone into a salvation experience and relationship with God. And uh, uh, it's, it's training them up in the Word of God to know God's will, to know God's Word, to be able to discern it, to apply it, and, and even to be able to teach it to others. So 1 Timothy, I believe, um, I can't remember, it might be chapter 3, uh, verse 8, somewhere in there, but it says, The things which you have heard of me, commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Okay, so uh, what we want to do is we want to replicate disciples, not just, it's like, um, it's like if we go out on the streets and we, we, we get people to get saved, and then we give them a hug and say, God bless you, and we leave them. And we don't get them discipled. It's like giving birth to a baby and set them on the curb. You know, who would do such a thing? And yet we do it all the time. What we need to do is we need to be very intentional about whole person discipleship, bringing them out of the, from the conversion experience into actually following God, following and obeying His Word every step along the way in every area of life. Okay, so um, discipleship too is is broader than just one-on-one, -on -one, individual to individual, or even pastor to congregation. It's the church going into the world and speaking the truth to the world. Um, when I was ministering with Alex at this seminar uh, uh, at the FRC conference, he used a phrase I had not heard before, but it makes total sense. He said that the gestational period, <laughs> the gestational period for um, conversion in America is increasing. Now, that's pretty fancy language. What did he mean by that? I think what Alex meant was the time period that it takes for someone from the first time they hear the gospel to actually becoming a believer is getting longer in America. Well, why would that be happening? What could be contributing to that? Well, um, uh, it, it goes to this. Uh, Let's say you're going to go out on the street, Frank, and you're going, to, you're going to share the gospel with somebody. And you come up to some young man who uh, already believes that God created the world. Okay? Uh, and then you come up to somebody else who believes that God created the world and believes that the Bible is the Word of God. And then you come up to somebody else, and this person doesn't believe in the Bible, doesn't believe that God created the world. He's a, he's a dyed-in-the-wool atheist and thinks that he evolved from primordial slime. And if he had to say whether there was a God, he might say, I am God. Okay, there, that number is increasing. The other two are decreasing in our culture today.
So what, what's my point? My point is, by going into all the world, every area of society, and standing for truth, um, what we're doing is we're preparing the ground, we're preparing the world, we're preparing people to receive the gospel, and it's that work in the culture that will make it much easier for people to get saved, right? When we abandon these areas of the culture, science, education, movies, entertainment, sports, all of this, to the world, it just gets people more and more cemented in an unbiblical worldview, and it's a lot harder. It takes a lot longer. It's a lot more work to get them brought to Christ. So for a long time in the United States, we've been evangelizing to people that already had some of the basics. The, yeah, I mean, for the longest time, 95% of Americans believed in God, right? And they, they may not be saved or believe in Jesus per se. Most Americans, 78, 85% would believe in the virgin birth even, even though they're not personally born again. So getting them saved was a lot easier. But those things are dropping like rocks because we're not engaging the culture anymore and the message that's coming through social media and advertising and sports and everything else in schools is all contradictory to the gospel. So this brings me back to what I was saying. Um, so when we're, uh, we're talking about what's the difference between evangelism and discipleship, yeah, they are different, but it's important to understand that, that they go together too. Right? That it's preaching, teaching, standing for all truth matters. So for a pastor or a Christian to say, I don't, I'm not going to get involved in politics. I'm not going to talk about schools or education or, uh, or uh, uh, human sexuality issues because they're too controversial. They'll drive people away from my church or whatever. You're missing it, pal. Okay, you are totally missing it. You are defeating yourself before you ever get started. We have to talk about all these things. We have to talk about them because they're the issues of the day, because they're what Satan is using to, to remove people from the gospel, to pull them away from God. So you think you're going to win the world just by having people come into your church and hear a nice pep talk on Sunday morning? You're wrong. You're not going to get there. There's no way mathematically for us to win the world this way. We cannot get enough people to go to church buildings on Sunday morning to win the world to Christ. Now, that might be a revelation to some of you, but we can't do it. We don't have enough buildings. We don't have enough room, and there's no way for us to motivate enough people to do that. Do you understand what I'm saying? The way the world, most people come to Jesus. Most people come to Christ because of the testimony and the influence and the witness of a family member or a friend or a, an associate at work, right? It's people that are out in the marketplace, out in the world, doing it. That's how most people come to Christ. Some come to Christ because they've been invited to church or to a gospel meeting, and they go to the altar, and that is valid. It's good. We should do that. I'm not downplaying that. But what we really need to do, what our, our main uh, understanding needs to be the church is an equipping place. And we've got to equip believers with everything they need, including a solid biblical worldview to go into the culture, to be salt and to be light and to speak the truth on the issues of our day and every other issue. Because winning a nation to Christ is a holistic process. It's not just getting people to come to your church on Sunday morning and hear the Romans road and all of this. It's too narrow. The Great Commission is much bigger than this, guys. This is what our founding fathers understood. 
They were scientists. They were farmers. They were teachers. They founded universities and hospitals and um, uh, research things. And I mean, you know, because they understood that the God wants His glory everywhere. And bringing glory to God is our number one priority. Evangelizing the world is our number two priority. And I know that's probably causing your brains to tilt too. But anyway, Frank, that's a long, long answer to a, a, a pretty basic question. I hope that was helpful. Thanks for calling in. Hey, next I want to go to Jesse, another Jesse calling in from Nevada. Jesse, thank you for calling today. Hello. Yeah, hi. Hello. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Um, my question was um, regarding the Trinity. Yes, sir. Um, I'm... Um, I recently, I grew up Catholic. Recently, the past couple of years, I've been um, going to the Christian church. I've always um, believed in the Trinity. I just never really dove deep into defining what the Trinity was. Okay. Um, and recently, about a week ago, one of my buddies, he has a, his father's a pastor here in in um, Vegas, and he mentioned I mentioned the Trinity to him, and he uh, mentioned that he doesn't believe in the Trinity. And I was like, "Aren't you Christian?" And he's like. Yeah, no, he's like, we believe in, in there being one God and, and, and one God only. We don't believe that, that there's three different um, distinct persons. So then I looked at the definition of the Trinity, and it says that it's one God being three distinct persons. And then he kind of like explained his argument for the oneness. So I'm kind of like confused in a way, and in the sense that the, the verbiage that is being used where it says that you know, God is um, one one person. I mean, three distinct persons and one God. I don't know why they necessarily might have used the word persons to describe that. Um, and another question is, what do you think is the issue to uh, where the oneness stands that say that they say that it's one God, but he can manifest himself in different ways rather mm -hmm. than persons? Yeah. Okay. So, wow. Okay. So, Jesse, thank you. We could We could certainly talk about this for the rest of the show. Uh, the Trinity um, is a doctrine of Orthodox Christianity, right? It goes way, way back. Um, the Bible never uses the word Trinity um, or triune, but the Trinity, the triune nature of God is present in just all throughout Scripture, okay? And it's not just the New Testament either. Um, in the book of Genesis, uh, the, from the very beginning, God says, let us make man in our, our image, um, and, and, then it, and then it'll switch, and it'll begin to refer to God in the singular first person, God said. Um, and, you know, God appears and spoke to them. So um, what we see, if you, if you look at the whole Bible, and, and people that deny the existence of the Trinity, uh, Christians that deny it, they're taking singular verses out of context and things like that. But if you look at the, at the whole Bible, you'll see the Trinity throughout. Um, uh, so in the New Testament, for example, when Jesus was baptized, right? You remember when he was baptized in the Jordan River? So you have the Son of God being baptized, and then it says, when he came out of the waters, he saw heaven open. I believe this is in uh, Mark chapter 4, and he heard, a, he heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Uh, that's the Father, right? This is my Son. So this is the Father. 
And then it says he saw the Spirit descending upon him like a dove, in the form of a dove. So right there from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see the Trinity. You have the Father, you have the Son, and you have the Holy Spirit. Okay? And yet the Old Testament tells us repeatedly that the, the, Lord, our, the Lord our God, He is one. We serve one God, okay? not three gods. So if you take those two ideas together, then what we have is we have three in one. All right, And they are so perfectly united, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so singular in the essence of who they are, that they are actually and truly one God. But God exists simultaneously in three divine persons. Um, the, Jesus said, before, the, before Abraham was, I am. Okay, I am. So he's claiming divinity right there. He's using God's name for himself, right? And he's claiming that he existed before time. And as a person, I am, right? Well, how can that be? How can, uh, uh, you know, if like the, 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 some people say that, some people say that Jesus and the Father are the same thing. That makes no sense to say that there's not any distinction between them because Jesus prayed to the Father. In John chapter 17, oh, Father, I pray that, that they are one even as you and I are one. Well, th that makes no sense to pray to the Father if He is the Father, right? He's like mentally ill or something. So we have three persons that are so perfect in essence and, and, and identical in essence that they are one. And they exist eternally, eternally before time and after time as one God. Um, in John chapter 17, in John chapter 17, we see, let's go look at that prayer for a second, okay? I'm sorry, I'm having a trouble typing in my uh, password. Okay, John chapter 17. This is the prayer that Jesus prayed uh, before he went to the cross. And he said, um, in John 22, uh, 17, 22, And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. He's, he's saying, you and me, Father. And then he says, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. So there we see him referring to, he's in the Father and the Father is in him. How can Jesus be in the Father? Right? Um, and yet, throughout the New Testament, Paul refers to us as being in Christ. In fact, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says, we are one spirit with Christ. Not one in spirit, right? You know the phrase, oh, we're one in spirit. No, you are one spirit. Okay? So that means that the spirit of God is, is, is uh, literally one with our spirit. And yet, our spirits are distinct as well. We know this, right? The unity in the Spirit is so complete and so perfect that you can be referred to as one. So God exists in three persons for all time. Before creation and after time will no longer exist. Uh, this is on many different pages of Scripture. And, uh, and so can we fully understand it? Well, we can try to explain it in this world. But the problem is that we have no reference point that's exactly like that. And so our minds only get so far. Um, St. Patrick of Ireland tried to explain the Trinity by pointing to a clover leaf. So you have one leaf, don't you? And yet you have three petals on that clover leaf, 
okay? Uh, the, the Irish still use the clover leaf today as their, as their symbol. Um, if you look at human beings, your own self, Jesse, or me, we, the Bible says that we have three dimensions to our humanity. We are spirit, we are soul, and we are body. Some people try to say we're just two-dimensional, that spirit and soul are the same thing, but that's not true. Um, because there's different Greek words for it and they have different meaning. Spirit means breath, soul means psyche, okay? The psyche in the Greek, they're two different things. So Paul prayed, I think it was in 2 Thessalonians, that we be sanctified holy body, soul, and spirit. Our spirit is born again, made new, uh, created in righteousness and true holiness. Uh, the Bible says, as he is, so are we in this world, John 4, 17. So our spirit is made brand new, but our soul, our mind, we have to renew. Be ye not conformed, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? That's uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Uh, and yet the body, we're not told to renew the body, we're told to subject the body, to bring it into subjection. To what? To the spirit, your, in, your inward spirit working through your mind. But you are one person, body, soul, and spirit. You can't, those can't be separated. I can't take your spirit and set it over here. If I do that, your body dies, right? So you are one person, but you have three parts to you that can't be separated. This is very similar to how God is, although even that is probably lacking in a perfect explanation. So to some degree, we have to receive this by faith. I can't claim that I understand it, uh, but I do believe it because it's clear in scripture that that's the nature of God. All right. So I hope that answered your question. Um, and, um, yeah, if, if, uh, if it continues to be a struggle for you, I think um, there's probably some books out there that you could get a hold of. Um, but the, the one, let me warn you against the oneness doctrine. And that's what you ran up against the person who said they don't believe in the Trinity. The oneness doctrine says that no, um, uh, those people will oftentimes deny that Jesus was, was God, or they will say that Jesus and the Father are the same person that Jesus is the Father. Both of those are not correct. I don't want to go so far as to say that they're heresy, but they are not Orthodox Christianity, and you need to reject that, okay? All right, Jesse, thank you for your question. I really appreciate the call. Next, I want to go to Sandy from Colorado, who's a subscriber to Truth and Liberty. Yay, go Sandy. All right, Sandy, what's your question? Hi, Richard. Okay, hey. so I was wondering, um, what would it take to be able to create a class action lawsuit against public schools? Because they, they have these standards, and if you're a homeschooler and you don't meet those standards, then they can take your kids away and they can see you and all of these different things can happen to you. Um, however, the kids, especially since COVID, none of the kids, hardly any of the kids, less than half, have been actually passing those standards. They've been graduating people out of high school who can't read. Yeah. So what would it take to actually create a class action lawsuit against the public schools? Obviously, this would have to be like district by district kind of a thing. But once that bowl started rolling, right? Yeah. Like? Well, that's a, that's a great uh, legal question. And um, I can go only so far with you on that because... Um, it would take, as a lawyer, I would have to sit down and study that out, um, think about it, uh, find out what the evidence is. But basically, um, um, you can't, first thing to remember is you can't just sue the government for anything you want. When the government does something you don't like, you can't just sue them for it. Um, you, you, there are certain types of government action that 
can be sued over and certain types that can't. Now, one thing is if you could show the deprivation by schools of a civil right, then you could sue on that. Um, if you could show possibly that the government, that the public schools were not following the law in some respect, you might be able to sue on that. Like, let's say they weren't following the legislature's mandated uh, standards, okay? But I don't think Colorado legislature mandates standards. They do in some areas, but generally we have local control in Colorado. Um, but but there, are there are broad standards and stuff like that, but, but they don't really get into a lot of specifics. So I'm not sure how successful you'd be on that. But if you could show that, if you could show that they broke the law, and you, then you also legally have to, it has to be the kind of law that, in, that includes a private cause of action. There's lots of laws that can be broken and you can't file a private lawsuit on them, okay? Um, so it has to be one of those. And I can't get into what all is entailed in that. A court has to look at the law and it decides that based on, number one, does the legislature say you can sue on that? If the legislature doesn't say you can sue on it, then they look at all, a whole bunch of like 15 different factors to determine whether uh, it's reasonable to infer that the legislature intended you to be able to sue or whether you ought to be able to sue. And so that's a, a, a big, long analysis there. So, um, so civil rights or generic violation of law that carries a private right of action, those have to be established. The next thing is you have to show damages. In other words, your child was harmed in some way. Um, and then uh, if you can show damages, what we call cognizable damages, not just... Um, your, that your child's upset, but that they were harmed in some fashion. And you could, maybe the quality of education is, is adequate, I'm not sure. Um, but any loss of money would, would, would do it. Uh, any physical harm would do it. Um, but um, the, the, so they have to have cognizable damages. And then the, the next thing um, is uh, that there's no immunity. So most governmental functions, the government is immune from lawsuit. It has to be a kind where there's no immunity. Uh, and then, um, uh, um, class action. A class action is when you go to a court and you say, the, the defendant has harmed me by violating its duty in this respect, and uh, there are lots of other people in, who are similarly situated to me who I believe have, have been harmed, and it would be more efficient for the court to uh, create this, uh, to treat this as a, an action by the class of people, so it become, you ask the court to certify it as a class action. There's several different factors that have to be met in order for it to be a class action uh, suitable, and I don't want to get into all that. Um, it, it, it takes a lot of it takes a lot to do that. It can be done, but you have to have the same type of harm from the same type of conduct um, in, uh, in order to create uh, a class. And you have the, the, the people that have been harmed by the defendant's wrongful conduct have to be uh, uh, identifiable, okay? So, so if you can get the judge to certify a class um, and you've got a private right of action and the state doesn't have immunity, uh, and you've been damaged, have suffered cognizable damages, then you could file a class action lawsuit against the schools, <laughs> okay? So it's a big mountain legally. You need to find a good lawyer who deals, preferably one who deals in education law and litigation uh, before you try to go down that road. So um, I, I would love to see some litigation to set things right in Colorado and elsewhere on the subject, uh, subjects that we are so concerned about. Um, I think there's some of that brewing, 
um, but I'm not sure about class action. I haven't heard of any class actions. So good idea. Uh, why don't you go find a lawyer and get an hour of free consultation and uh, let me know what he says. <laughs> okay, we've got three minutes left. Thank you, Sandy, for your call. We've got three minutes left. Um, we've got a viewer who messaged in online and said, do you think that Gen Zers may have some godly values but are just not biblically uh, literate? No, there's no Gen Zers with biblical value. No, I'm just kidding. Yes, Gen Zers, some Gen Zers especially, have biblical values, and Gen Zers as a whole do have some biblical values. There's no question about that. Um, the question, though, is whether they see the world through biblical lens. Do they view truth from a biblical perspective? Is the, do they define things, you know, according to what the Bible says? Um, you know, did God create the world? Uh, are we inherently sinful without Christ? Did God send His Son, born of a virgin Mary? Did the, did the Son of God die on the cross for us? Was He raised from the dead on the third day? Is He coming again? Is God sovereign over all things? Will He judge the world for our sin? Is everybody accountable? Is there heaven and is there hell? Is there a devil? These kinds of basic questions. Not very many Gen Zers would, would be able to click Check the boxes on all those things. So, you know, uh, the, the fewer things you have on the list, of course, the more people are going to, boxes they're going to be able to check. So some Gen Zers uh, do agree in some of those things, um, but the, the, the reality is that the numbers are few and it is deeply concerning and uh, they are biblically illiterate by and large and we've got to change that and uh, we've got to begin to address that issue. So thank you for that question, viewer. It was a really good one. Thanks to all of you for watching the Truth and Liberty Live call-in show today. I hope it's been a blessing to you. Again, I wanted to remind you uh, that I'm going to, uh, that you can watch the Truth and Liberty Conference on our website. I'm also going to be loading my PowerPoint from today, my slides from today's talk on our website so you can look those over. Is it time for us to reset our understanding of the Great Commission in the church? And I believe 100% emphatically that it is. I hope I've, I've made some progress of convincing you that. But more than anything, I hope that you'll do something about it. I hope you'll take those suggestions that I have and go into your local church and be a problem solver, not just a griper and complainer. Amen. And I know that's what you are. Uh, I believe that. And so I'm excited about that. Be sure to tune in tomorrow. Uh, I'm going to be hosting again tomorrow on the Truth and Liberty Show, and it's going to be a great program. I'm waiting for confirmation from uh, the guests that I've invited, so I, I can't announce it just yet, but it's going to be a great program. Be sure to tune in 3.30 Mountain Time on truthandliberty.net. Be sure to register for the Minister's Conference October 2nd through the 6th. You won't be disappointed. It's going to be a great event there. And if you don't own a copy of Biblical Worldview, why don't you start saving up your nickels and get you one? Uh, it's a powerful, powerful resource that you can use to begin to make disciples in our culture today. And, and with that said, I, last, I just want to thank uh, the CTN Network for carrying our, our show once a week. Looking forward to eventually having that on as a daily show. Uh, like and follow us on Facebook. God bless all of you, and we look forward forward to seeing you again next time on the Truth and Liberty live call-in show. Thank you for joining today's Truth and Liberty livecast. You can watch today's and past livecasts in our archives at truthandliberty.net. Our goal is to educate Christians and connect them with resources and organizations to help them impact their sphere of influence. You can help us accomplish this by making a donation at truthandliberty.net slash donate. Join us next time for more Truth and Liberty.